This is mutual. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. Sonic Echo. Partners, it's old Dusty Trail Jack here with our final roundup of westerns on our fourth season of Sonic Echo as we enjoy the campfire and the music of the coyotes. Let me introduce my amigos, Lothar Tuppen. I see the sun is starting to head down on the horizon and we better start riding west. <laughs> and Jeff Billard. Yeah, I'm going to be heading over to the saloon real soon. It's been that kind of day. <laughs> That sounds a lot more appetizing than the back of my horse's saddle. I'll join you at the saloon right away, brother. (laughs) And don't water the whiskey. Yeah. Thank you for coming. At some point, the Old West does end. According to history, it had a good run at the American frontier from 1607 to 1920. As fans, writers, producers, and actors, we have this episode of Sonic Echo to sit down and talk about what we can possibly learn from Westerns, and especially the old radio drama Western. Who wants to get started? What did we learn from this season? <laughs> well, I think... Nothing, I guess, no. I didn't learn a damn thing. I was too busy drinking whiskey. Uh, um, covering from a snake bite. Um <laughs> I think one of the things was was solidifying thoughts that, you know, we might have already been percolating some vague feelings, discarding stuff and sort of solidifying. And and for me, one of the ones is the continuity of these archetypes, Um, not to be reductive and say, oh, it all goes back to Gilgamesh, you know, one of our favorite tropes for this thing. Um, Or, you know, it's continuing all the way through. But there is a continuity of that aspect of that archetype. But there's also very specifically American temporally pertinent aspects as well. And I think that's the interesting thing to see where are the, the commonalities and the differences and um, how that might move forward. And, and as we talk a little bit more, we'll talk about maybe how the uh, the shadow of the Western has affected a lot of art, American and non, um, post the Western period, both historically and uh, in pop culture when it was no longer quite as uh, as popular as it was. I want to see Gilgamesh the Western now. Can you please write that for me, please, Lothar? I'm pretty <laughs> sure we could probably find one like that anytime. That, uh, yeah, but yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. What about that you, would. Jeff? What are your general uh, things that you feel like you learned from in our Western series? Well, you know, I learned. I I think I mentioned this before, but I grew up not really enjoying westerns. They were on TV all the time, and my dad was big into them, and. Uh, I was never really into them, but later in life I came to appreciate them. And and but now I've got a whole new layer of understanding that I think we can talk about in terms of the tropes of the Western and what it means culturally to um, to our nation and how it's it's kind of our 
you know, our, I don't know the word for it. Um, you can say the M word. You know, it's okay. Back, it's, our, it's what? Say again? You can say the M word. It's okay. Oh, oh. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do it. Um, but I think it forms the basis of, of our culture in terms of, in terms of our mythos. You know, is that the word? Is that the <laughs> word? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I really, I really didn't know. Um, um, it's just, it's the time change. I don't know what's going on. Um, but the other thing I have to say is that, um, and I'm so glad I was thinking this morning, Lothar, I'm so glad that you came up with the idea on the fly to do the theme season like this. And I'm so glad we're going to continue it because I, it's just been such a rich thing of, of looking at all the different shows that we looked at and finding the commonalities and finding the differences and all kinds of things that we that we looked at, like honor and redemption and standing up for what's right and reputation. Um, and for me, it, it's kind of a lot of these Westerns is they're looking at the end of an era of transitions um, of that. And But I do have to say that the Western as a form is so still alive and well. Uh, I watched I watched The Mandalorian season two. I won't give any spoilers. Don't worry, folks. <laughs> but um, it's the most Western of all the Mandalorian shows. I mean, complete with like a Western town, basically. You know, and <laughs> I, and I was I was just sitting. I was thinking of you guys. I watched it last night, and I was thinking of you guys are going, man. This is such a Western, even more than usual. So that that whole thing is so still alive and well. I think it's so ingrained um, in our psyche as a people um, cool. that you know we just keep coming back to it. So this has been fun. I've I've loved this. Me too. I I'm reminded. I I got some notes about Christian Metz, um, who was a French um, film auteur who came up with the four stages, what he considered to be the four stages or four cycles, I should say, of uh, of movies in for a particular genre. So, for example, he would say the first stage or the first cycle, I should say, is um, when the genre sort of just breaks out on the scene and you've got blueprints of what the genre and, and the elements are, rules are set. Uh, it's the foundation of the genre. So you get things that come mm -hmm. out like stagecoach and stuff like that, that sort of right. set these kind of places and and then you have the classical cycle or stage where genre genre becomes iconic and the tropes and the formulas are embraced by everybody that's when you get the third stage which is parody where you can throw these little um tropes out and and elements and everybody knows what you're talking about so it's easy to make fun of because every it's it's part of the collective conscious mm -hmm. at that point and then the fourth stage is where we're at with a lot of Westerns, specifically the Mandalorian, with the deconstruction stage, where it evolves beyond its own conventions, can break some of the rules whenever they want to, but it also usually isn't part of one single genre. It could be married to other genres. So we see that in sci-fi with Firefly and the Mandalorian and, and, and other things as well. But it, it, it creates something more new once you hit that deconstruction stage. The parody is kind of fun for the moment, but it's not a long-term thing. If you just did parody after parody after parody, people would get pretty bored with it. Have you seen any of the uh, responses to Metz's uh, structure? No, I haven't. Um, a lot of them, the, the, they're people just sort of talk about, you know, that, yes, the, these are valid, they're very strong, but don't look at it linearly because 
things don't always happen that way, especially when they erupt organically. Like, for example, the genre didn't just come out of whole cloth. It was, you know, a continuity of older heroic mythos that was then reapplied. And that all those different stages, which are valid, they can overlap like bubbles or Venn mm -hmm. diagrams to where they never quite completely go away. We can go back to parody. We can have deconstruction earlier than we've had now. There was actually you know, a lot of deconstruction in the mid 20th century that was already going on with that. Then it comes back being more serious again. And it's a dynamic process, not a chunk, 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 chunk. But that's the only criticism that I've seen against Metz's stuff is just don't see it quite as uh, taxonomical and linear. See it more as a dynamic process that has trends, but that they can flow. I, I agree. And I think that the, the dynamic aspect also depends upon the the listening or, or viewing public. In our case, the listening public, right, that listens to it, mm -hmm. because there are there are things that we, you and I, and Jeff, and 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 a lot of people who've been around since the golden age of modern audio drama would recognize as some kinds of uh, tropes in in the way that we used to do things that people now who are just getting into it wouldn't have any clue. So they would mm -hmm. miss out on, you know, that second stage of understanding what, you know, what the classical stage is. And they would either see it as as unique or experimental or a parody of something else. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, like it you could see it or or, a, you know, somehow, a, you know, a, a connection between that and having a just, you know, a deconstruction of one genre with another. They they wouldn't understand things for what they are. So you almost yeah. need to have a very well-read or a very well-listened audience to be able to make it happen linearly in any way, shape, or form, too. Yeah, and then there's an interesting thing that just uh, came to mind, and this actually ties in with your mention of uh, Gilgamesh as a Western, because that made me think of Alejandro Jodorowsky's stuff. Um, have mm -hmm. you ever seen any of his films? No. Uh, Can you give me oh, some titles? Uh, just so. uh, El Topo, The Holy Mountain, Santa Sangre are his three biggest ones. They're I saw surrealist. El Topo a long time ago. I don't El even remember it. El Topo is a Western. Okay. It's also a spiritual parable of Christianity. Cool. Hmm. Very strongly so. And it's one of those things to where the you know, the word deconstructionist really comes out of postmodern theory. So it has certain rules to be a true deconstructionist and blah, 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 blah. Um right. you know, Horowski's doing something completely different to where it's expressionistic, it's symbolic, it's surrealistic, it's mythological, it's uh yeah, it's its own kind of category, and you got, you know, other things like uh, uh, when the here's and here's something I think it'll be interesting to talk about modern audio drama a little bit of where is the genetic structure of the Western still present where it's very strong, but it wasn't like a a, a conscious deconstruction of mm -hmm. we're going to take the Western in and put it into Star Wars, so now we got the Mandalorian, you know, or Firefly, right. mm -hmm. which was very clearly intentionally a Western, but then you've got right. things like. Um, you know, to go back to audio drama, we're alive. Where yes, I, I you know I'm not a huge zombie fan, so I haven't listened to a lot of it, but I have read a lot of interviews because they were one of the most popular of the early modern audio dramas that you know made money and got a lot of national acclaim and international acclaim. And they have constantly said we went back to Gunsmoke for our template. We listened to template to Gunsmoke to see how uh, how could we write these scripts. How could we uh, pace things right for audio? It's a masterclass on just making audio drama in general. And then you see like, wow, that genetic structure of the Western is very strong in there. And mm -hmm. same thing with any post-apocalyptic stuff. Po po most post-apocalyptic Mad Max style post-apocalyptic post fiction is pretty much a Western. 
Well, it has the external elements, hmm. and I made a list of some of the external elements you see in Westerns. If you think about post-apocalyptic stuff, they often have that. So shootouts, standoffs, outlaws, f- the, uh, some form of gunslinger, and uh, they have horses here, which you may not have in post-apocalyptic, but you may totally the car, have in things the like car, yeah, the, the car, the car. <laughs> or or it, in, in The Postman, right? Like they still have horses, right? When they run yep. out of gas, right? Yep. So you, th- that is post-apocalyptic sort of new age Western as well. And so some of those external elements uh, are, are there to um, sort of trigger people into thinking, <laughs> trigger think people into thinking about westerns in one way or another i think See, i'm not sure that's intentionally done because a lot of those archetypes came out of exploitation films like mad max that did not have the western as an archetype yep yep it's quite possible but uh, but maybe it was a subconscious thing too because if we take a look at the themes and this is one of the things we talked about as well is that those themes are kind of universal in a particular kind of story that you can go all the way back to yeah, I would, I would say subconscious like coming out of the collective unconscious, all that stuff. That's kind of what I'm talking about, about that genetic structure still being there. I was just yeah. trying to make a counterpoint between that and the very intentional, let's do a Western in space. Let's do a Western here um, yeah. you know, where it's intentionally part of the <clears> mix <throat> as opposed to, wow, where did that come from? I didn't realize how strong that was in my own psyche. Oh, yeah. No, I, I wouldn't suggest that the external elements um, – are part of the DNA of the story. I just think that they're kind of a neat thing that people sort of click off and go, oh, this kind of reminds me of a Western because of that external element. But it's really the deeper elements that that add more of that Western flavor. So well, this the is interesting. that let, I had... Let, let me mention something real briefly, and then let's go into sure. your internal stuff, because I think here we get the mixture between the two, because those external elements, I would actually link to a true, both both in the semiotic and the Jungian sense, a symbol. Something mm-hmm. that is more than a sign. It's not just, oh, it's, you know, this very s- simplistic thing. At this point in time, the six-shooter has become almost as powerful of a symbol as a sword. Yeah, um, sure. The horse has always been a very strong symbol. It, I mean, it goes, it, it's, it's a sacred animal to all of our Indo-European ancestors. All of these things now become, on the, they have an out, outward appearance, but then it's a... You know, a strange attractor to use, you know, fractal theory to where it keeps iterating into itself and becoming more. And that leads to the deeper meaning, which is all that inner stuff that you're just about to talk about. Yeah. And they use they use uh, guns and call them swords because uh, that's that's on the guns themselves for Romeo and Juliet with the exactly. Leonardo DiCaprio version. I had to th- I had to throw it in so people could have their full bingo. We had to mention Shakespeare at some point. <laughs> yes. Well, yep. I'm glad you did. Good. It wasn't just me. Thank you. I appreciate so that. My internal ones, and I, I, I want to hear what Jeff thinks about this too, because I mean, I'm talking way too much. <laughs> but the themes, uh, things like protectionism, the gray areas in the law, survival, changing times, civilization versus nature or barbarity, one of the two, reputation, those are like the main things that I kept seeing popping up in Westerns. Did I miss anything? Not that I can think of right now. Well, I think probably inherent in what you said, you know, is the is the idea of, of you know, honor and, and reputation, redemption. I think you said that one. Mm-hmm. The big one, like I said, the big one for me is one of the ones you mentioned. It's the, the changing of the time, the transition, which is why I like the Peckinpah films so much, because that's what they're always about. The old, the, that kind of cultural shift, you know, from the horse to the automobile. And it's kind of interesting, Lothar, when you're talking about the car. 
in in the in the Mandalorian. I mean, he actually rides into town on one of those speeder bikes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, very slowly. It's very it's very Clint Eastwood, kind of almost like a spaghetti western Mandalorian in a sense. I like the term neo western when they talk about stuff that like you know, No Country for Old Men and Sicario mm-hmm. oh, yeah. and and Sicario. I mean, a couple of others like um, what's the the river one that that you mentioned before too, Jeff. The river one? Yeah, it's it's done by the same director who did Sicario. Oh yes, yes, yes. Uh, uh, is it Wind River? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yep. There's there, there's all these elements that come up, and I think you're right. I think change is you know highlighted in all of these because um, it it tends to be one of the most important things that we as human beings are always struggling with is change. And mm-hmm. the older you get, the harder it is to change, right? And change happens regardless of your feelings. Um, right. and, and, and change represents the aspects of, you know, nature versus civilization and which is crumbling and which is growing and all those things. There's a great Haitian uh, metaphor in their uh, voodoo spirituality, which is the symbol. There's a, there's a motto around it and a symbol of a bunch of rocks. And as you're putting rocks on top, they will tumble and find a stability. And their motto is um, change is the price of stability. Oh, wow, that's fantastic. It even true. goes, it's not that it's a Western so much, but, you know, I mean, at the end of Huck Finn, right, he lights out for the territories because he's not going to be civilized, right? Right. Yep. He's, he's had enough of that. I mean, it's it's even in, in things like Lord of the Rings, right? It's all about change in Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, God, yeah. yeah. And oh. they, they leave, you know, the, the elves leave and some of the hobbits right. leave in the end. So even when they try to return things back to where they are, things are forever changed. I was just looking at our list of things. Sorry, sorry, Lothar, but our list of things. Is there any one of those shows that we've listened to that didn't have one element to do with change? Gunsmoke, Escape, Wild Jack Rhett, The Six Shooter, Mm -hmm. Duel at Lockwood, The Singing Guns, Dr. Six Gun, Colonel Crown is a Madman, The Northern I Brought In, The Challenge of the Yukon Shows, The Gunfighter, and then Fort Laramie, as well as uh, Have Gun Will Travel. All of those had to deal with change. Well, I think we've got a we got a couple of things going on there. One is which, um, whenever you're dealing with a story that has to do with expanding boundaries, you're, you've obviously got change inherently as part of it. You can't have that without it having change as an aspect of it. Um, so you're moving the frontier. You're expanding the frontier. Of course, everything is changing. Mm-hmm. The other aspect is, you know, getting back to the the you know mythological thing. I always go on is the concept of cycles. And whenever you deal with anything mythically, and this is very much an American um, mythology, and and that turning mm-hmm. into a series of legends and things like that is always about cycles. It's always about explaining where we came from, where we're going, how things are going to change. There's always some form of cosmogony of like a creation of a universe a stability of the universe and then usually some form of eschatology of how do things end and that's also a a personal ending as well as a cosmic ending and usually outside of very few cultures it's always cyclical and there's something that's going to come later because we tie into the cycles of nature and after winter comes spring yeah yeah i i I couldn't disagree i mean i think it's it's the key elements are that it's internal change between characters and their conflict and external change in the the story itself and the conflict of that. They have to mirror each other in one way or another. And this also ties – here's something I'm not sure if we've brought up before. Um, there's oh – God, I 
think it might even be on my bookshelf here. Uh, no. I thought it was on my bookshelf, but I guess not. Um, there's a great book of fairy tales um, written by a feminist uh, anthropologist uh, trying to sort of explain some of the characterization and the fem- uh, feminization of these, at the surface, very masculine fairy tales. And one of the points she made in a lot of oral cultures, especially before a few hundred years ago, internal emotional characterization was usually projected externally. Sure. So you go into a dark forest, maybe that character is having an internal crisis. And, you know, this then, you know, ties in with a lot of different oral theory versus literary theory of, um, you know, everything has to be externalized. And then the audience got it. That was part of what they read. And I think what we get here in, in some of these very archetypal mythological modern things, we get that merging again to where we have that external symbology that to an older audience, they would have gone, yeah, I understand the internal conflict. And now we've got both. We've got both the internal characterization and the external symbology working in conjunction with each other. Wouldn't you say, wouldn't you argue, I'm thinking about this now. I think the West, the whole point of the setting of the West is to identify that external conflict. That it, I mean, if you have just an internal conflict, it could be any kind of story, any kind of genre. But um, when you have things that are defined specifically in a tone and a mood and a setting, that's when you're you're like the tone and the mood focus effectively on internal, but they also extend to the external as usually. But oh, absolutely. When you're talking about the Western specifically, because of the nature of the West and its limitations that you talked about, Lothar, that is pressing it's it's giving you that duality of external conflict and internal conflict and the changes that that both represent absolutely and i'd even argue that's one of the the strongest things about the supposed non-genre of the literary novel of the 20th century you know where they always say we're not genre we're not genre we're not genre well yeah okay sure um you're not what you mean by genre, but, you know, uh, a lot of times at, if you try to describe the plot of a lot of those novels, absolutely nothing happens. Man went to a baseball right. game. Don DeLillo's Underworld. You know, it's like, yeah, no, you know, uh, it, it's all about the style. It's all about the mood, the tone, the uh, the way you tell the story is what's important, not the Wikipedia entry of content. And I think you get, you know, when you get like those John Ford Westerns, right, with the, the wide cinemascope or whatever it was. And just the huge, huge tracking shots, extreme long shots of of looking at the the uh you know, the terrain of the West especially and how yep. inhospitable so much of it is. Or even in, in uh Good the Bad and the Ugly, when they're going through the desert area or the terrain, the the area, it, the the external conflict is definitely, definitely huge. Yep. Are you familiar with uh, the uh, the uh, Stephen King series of books? They made a really crappy movie about it, uh, the Dark Tower series. Mm-hmm. I've heard of it. it the, I don't know anything about it. It's one of those very divisive ones. Either people really love it or hate it. I love the first like three or four books very, very much and, and don't think he stuck the ending very well, but that's beside the point. But the first one, the first Four few from the Russian judge. Sorry. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> no. But um, it, it's taking place in a mythical world that seems first like the Old West, and then very early on in the first novel, you start realizing, oh, wait a minute, they're in a honky-tonk bar and the person is playing Hey Jude by the Beatles? What? 
And then you realize you're either in some afterworld or another dimension or post-apoc... You don't know what it is, but it's a gunslinger. And then you find out that the gunslinger comes from Gilead. His name is Roland, and he's... The gunslingers in this world are knights. They're basically Arthurian knights, and he's hunting down an, an evil sorcerer. Mm-hmm. So we've got this, oh, wow. and, and it's... But all of his imagery and his style comes from spaghetti westerns. And his initial impetus to start writing this was after reading Lord of the Rings in college. And he wanted to write yep. something large and mythological. And so here we've got an American doing a very American, large, <laughs> mythic thing. Yeah, this is one yeah, of his and I longest think that sounds running interesting. story I'll, things, I'll have to look at that. It? Yeah. But I think for me, the Spaghetti Western was very appealing. Growing up, the Vietnam War and all that stuff that was going on, it just it felt like something, you know, with the Clint Eastwood character, the man with no name, and then all of those, Sabata and all those that came out at that time in the 60s it it was a it was a, a shift from the white hats black hats type of a thing to a more gray area and, and that appealed yeah. to me don't they does. isn't there i forget the academic term it's something like in revisionist westerns or something like that that's when they went back and it was stopped being the 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 white hats and the black hats and more of a morally gray thing but there is a there is a point there that you're and exactly what you're talking about is when that transition happened in in the majority of westerns and how they were being approached and i think a lot like a lot of art it reflects the time period that you're in and and i I think with all the upheaval in the 60s and all that and and even though it was done in spain in italy it was definitely i think we said it before leone's first movie there that he made with clint eastwood was an exact copy of uh what your Jimbo, right? So, yep. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, I don't think the world yeah. could escape uh, the very long Cold War and all of its uh, permutations and consequences. You know, here we had Vietnam, but every every place was dealing with whether what we oh, were sure. dealing what, what us and Russia's uh, posturing was affecting everyone. I was and, thinking that. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, just uh, the last thing. But when you're talking about that landscape of you know the spaghetti westerns that was so powerful for me because one of the reasons why italy is a great place to to film a western is it has the exact of what we call mediterranean climate um that uh southern california has mm-hmm. i mean first time oh, first okay. time i went to italy i'm like i feel like i'm in california i mean as soon as you get outside of rome it's 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 ex- almost exactly the same and it is the exact same sort of climate a lot of the same plants can grow there so for me growing up in southern california it was the mythic version of my own landscape. It was very, very powerful for me. Very cool. Wow, that's amazing. And, and you know, the, the thing about the, the Spaghetti Western, something that Leone did especially well is these extreme close-ups of these very unattractive people, you mm-hmm. know, of, of with the sweat coming down. It, it was so, in some places, it was so gritty. It had an appeal for me. It still does. And I love to watch those films. I, I watch them quite all the time, you know, in, in the Peckinpah films, The Wild Bunch and, and all that. Well, you're also um, getting a lot of directors at that time period that, and, and DPs, directors of photography, that are influenced by a lot of the uh, 20th century uh, major photographers where they would play that person with the lined face. That is the most beautiful person I've ever seen because look at the way the shadow is playing off the face and in the in the grooves of, of this worn face that – bespokes a a lifetime of experience and seeing that sort of beauty Mm -hmm. from a photographer's eye i think then really translated into some of the less uh traditionally beautiful characters that we see in film later on i was thinking that the uh, revisionist western kind of dovetails with noir because it's it's ground it's sort of groundedly realistic it's mostly bleak not necessarily a happy ending it kind of puts the west in a critical lens and and that's what noir does. It kind of does all of those aspects as well, right? It just sort of tries to be able to be critical about your best 
beliefs about humanity and society and those kinds of things and, and, and puts you in that sense of discomfort. And and like you said, like it's interesting to see that the settings of those westerns aren't, you know, your typical farmland and pasture and, you know, <laughs> white mm-hmm. picket fences and Roy Rogers bucko, bu- bucking bronco rodeos. These are places that are on on the outskirts in that respect. They're, they're the seed that's going to grow into the, the tree of the mean streets of noir and hard-boiled detective fiction like you're talking about. I think yeah. that's a good point. Yeah, so, because at the end of, you know, the, the Clint Eastwood, and the, those are not happy endings like you said, Jack, you know, mm-hmm. or, or even the the newer ones like Sicario or Wind River, those those are not happy endings. No, uh, you know because it, the, that struggle is going to keep going on. I mean the the drug trade is going to keep going on in Sicario, and the, the the raping and mistreatment of of indigenous women, which is what Wind River is is talking about in a lot of times. You know that's not going to end, and and uh, maybe justice has been brought <clears throat> at you know a little bit of justice has been brought in, but it's not going to, it's not going to end any. Well, that'll be a really good thing for us to think about when we, when we do our uh, season of noir next is, you know, in the same way that there's kind of like this uh, separation between the older Western of the white hats and the and the good, bo- good guys and, and, you know, the good guys win and everybody has a happy ending and the more nuanced uh, gray, morally gray aspect of the revisionist Western is maybe a, a strong, you know, dividing line between the hard-boiled detective to where there's usually a happy ending, maybe not for our hero, but then he's riding off into the sunset to go fight another day and, you know, the town is happy behind right, him. Yeah. Or true noir, which is, there's there are no happy endings. That's kind of the whole point, right. is every character in a noir story that's not a hard-boiled detective version of that is probably going to end in tears, or they're going to leave the story at some point. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can see Sicario, like... The same kind of feeling of that in Chinatown, you know what I mean? Like, there's, oh, definitely. Oh, you, oh yeah. You, you've got that, and you know, or or No Country for Old Men, or any of those kinds of things. There's 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 an emptiness and a bleakness that that is is you know down to the bone when it comes to noir stories, and it's interesting to see them uh, fused in westerns, and like I guess the revisionist westerns because they have to take. Take away those 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 white hats to be able to make that happen. Right. Well, your your mention of No Country for Old Men and and it makes me think of the author Cormac McCarthy who wrote the novel. I would Whoa. actually say that there's actually you know he's almost created his own sort of genre that we would call you know nihilistic western uh, between that Blood Meridian and then um, The Road, which is you know post apocalyptic. But then again, we've already kind of mentioned the connections between post apocalyptic and the western. Holy crap! That makes every noir story look really happy. <laughs> oh, God. Blood Meridian is just brutal. Is it really? I haven't read that. It's also really hard to read because he doesn't like using standard punctuation. No, oh, it's okay. a stylistic convention that once you get in the rhythm, it's okay, but it's really annoying at first. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing is these these. I think in the end, one of the things that we consider to be genius from people is not that they're so incredibly original no one's ever seen their stuff before but they take things that people recognize from other genres and other styles and they create something of 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 newness a sense of newness within it and you're like wow i never thought about putting this together with this and coming up with this right yeah exactly or even just like like someone who could do a western 
and had a brand new take on it and goes, I'm not even mixing it with anything else. This is just my style, my way of expressing what I see. And if they do it effectively, it's like, wow, why did we ever stop liking this genre? Why did, why, why did we stop watching Westerns? This is awesome. Yeah, that's true. And, and I, I think there's been, I mean, I've mentioned Godless from Netflix a few times during this season. I think that was a, a genius work. And, and But then again, I, I like things like um, Silverado, Lawrence Kasdan. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, with that whole different kind of feel to it. I I, I, I thought that was, re- I, he's, I think he's a genius anyway, but... Um, Me too. You know those kinds of things, but you know you talk about Jack taking taking from what's gone before and making it into your own, and of course we know who did that all the time. That was Shakespeare, right? Right. I mean, I mean, you know, I just had to mention him once myself, (laughs) you know, um, just to make things right. But (laughs) I don't, I don't think that most people realize that, you know, Shakespeare's stuff was all from other plays and poems and stories and. And he, but he just took it to a whole new place, added so many layers to it that that's why it's still around, you know, from, you know, late 1500s, early 1600s, right? That's why we still read it in school and we still, mm-hmm. you know, see Shakespearean plays today, every, every day and movies, you know, based on Shakespeare stuff. So do either of you two remember who did this quote? It was something along the lines of, you know, a, a, a good, uh, a good writer borrows an excellent writer flat out steals. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's it's <laughs> not a, a it's not an uh you know it's not advice for plagiarism, but it's making the point of you know if you've got influences, go deep into them. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, it was a great writer steals. That's what it was. I think, it, I think it, it was Eliot, but I'm nice. I think it was T. S. Eliot who said that. Good I like, writers I like to call it paying steal. homage to. Yeah, I, I know we're we're wrapping up and and I and we're because we're also making the transition into noir and and we're already into thirty minutes, which is normally our time that we spend talking about these things. But I think one of the things that we mentioned that you know change is what kind of change. I think the change that they're talking about in, in often is someone's identity. I think that comes down to the other aspects we talked about when it comes to reputation and sure. redemption and stuff like that. And so a good identity isn't really tied down to a time or place, but it's it, identity can be determined by what we do with the baggage of that time and place. Does that make sense? Yeah. Are you like, talking yeah. about uh, specifically characters in a story or us as a a culture moving on from the Western or – I'm thinking about when I think about the westerns. I think about you know the identity that of the characters in those stories are connected to their time and place, but more so they're trying to escape the identity that they forged from it, or they're trying to repair it, or they're trying to maintain it. But it's not necessarily, and and the mistake that they make is that it's, and this is where change becomes a problem, right? Because they. They resist change because they realize that in change come they, – they're feeling that in change comes a change of who they are and their identity. But that's not really what identity should be about. It should be about who you are beyond whether change is happening around you or not. Well, it makes an interesting dichotomy because I think that is part of the human condition. We always – we're trying to do that. And we see that writ very large in these genres. But I think one of the things that is common between both the Western and – uh, noir that we're going to be getting into is that the past is actually 
probably the most important and impactful of the three stages of time that we separate things out to. You can't escape your past. You can mitigate it. You can try and grow from it. You can try and use it as a strength instead of a weakness, but you're never going to erase your past. And we see that very much with some of these gunslingers, and we're going to see that very strongly in noir. I agree. I agree. Noir, it's all about the folly of, oh, my future is going to be better and we'll just be able to forget it. Yeah, that's going to end in tears. <laughs> that's right. So yeah. last last bit, favorite moments, favorite shows, favorite uh, things that you want to share of, of this entire season. I think between the three of us, we chose nine really excellent shows i mean actually i guess it's 10 biggest challenge of the yukon was two but for listeners to go and and kind of focus their search and see if they like them as well and uh, keep on listening to them but i for me it was fun gunsmoke was a gunsmoke was just just came to me you know when we decided what we we're going to do i said i gotta do gunsmoke i think it's one of the best shows that's ever been made on radio and mm-hmm. um western or otherwise but Kind of the fun for me was finding the other two, the gunfighter and singing guns. Uh, singing guns, especially because I'd never heard of it. I'd, I'd never, you know, I just in my research found it, and and uh, it was it was so that was enjoyable finding those two shows. And gunfighter with Gregory Peck was just to me, I, I just loved it. I, I loved his acting, and I loved the story, and and I still haven't seen the movie, so I do have to do that. But it was. <laughs> It was fun. It was fun, like some of the stuff that you guys found that I'd never like, like Jack Rett, right? That was amazing. I I never would have found that. You know, the six shooter that I'd I'd always just kind of not listen to it. Then when mm-hmm. you know you brought it, Jack, I was like, well, now I have to listen to it, and and I listened to it. I, I thought, no, I did. It just never appealed to me because I, I said Jimmy Stewart just never really appealed to me that much, and I listened to it, and then it's kind of like, I think it's a life thing too. You know, sometimes. It's like you keep pushed not doing something and finally you do it and you go, hey, that was pretty good. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I was resistant to that. So it was it was wonderful to listen to that. And so and then of course just having the conversation and seeing where it goes. It's it's been a it's been a great experience for me in, in widening my horizons. And of course I love as an educator, I love talking about all of the, the things and, and you guys I always learn so much listening to both of you. So it's been a wonderful season for me. Right back at you, brother. Uh, okay, Lothar, what, what about you? Um, well, I, I definitely echo everything that uh, Jeff said. And one of the things for me and, and why I'm so glad we're uh, doing these longer thematically connected seasons is I, I really love getting beyond the 101s mm-hmm. of things. Uh, the beginning is great. It's obviously important. Um, I get more fun going a little deeper, going a little bit farther. And we got to do that very, very well this season really get to explore some thoughts in in ways I wouldn't have otherwise. And I guess what I enjoyed the most was just all the ways of, I guess what I enjoy about Sonic Echo the most is that the three of us have very contrasting approaches to things. But, and I'm using that in the, the uh, sort of layout world to where there's a difference between contrast and conflict. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't conflict, mm-hmm. but we contrast and the contrast makes things pop into focus more. And uh, we each get something out of that. And I just, I've really enjoyed what we've all brought to it, the different shows, the reasons why we've brought the shows. All of that has let me, you know, explore things beyond that beginning, you know, superficial level. Well, yeah, I was going to bring up that very specifically that uh, it's fascinating, you know, with some exceptions, but the general who will pick what kind of story. So, you know, 
the big feature stories often come from Jeff because he's done big feature stage mm -hmm. plays. So I can see that kind of aspect being brought up and the, the morally questionable uh, heroes in a really gritty uh, area um, often brought in by Lothar because that's one of the things you love to play in is that what everybody thinks is right is not necessarily right, right? And those kinds of things. And so that's very cool. And then, you know, my my typical uh, uh, sort of uh, law and order uh, superhero fascination shows up in a lot of the picks that I make, right? So <laughs> when the challenge of the Yukon, he's, you know, and have gun will travel. These are the people that are enforcing law in one way or another, the six shooter and all that kind of way. Um, it's, it's fascinating to see that each of us gets a chance to bring to each other an entirely different way of doing things. And one of the cool things that about Gunsmoke that I didn't realize, but I found some research of it when I did was that the director of Gunsmoke was tasked to make another noir. He was tasked to make a detective story like Sam Spade, and he came up with Gunsmoke. Uh, they wanted to make something that was really, really popular, but could be done as like a detective series. And it turns out this was Gunsmoke. So it's, it's great that Gunsmoke was our first choice because it does lead us into the noir, which tends to be very detective. Doesn't have to be, but tends to be very detective oriented yeah. as well. Well, and it comes out of that, right? It's the it's the early hard boiled detective fiction that goes over to France that then influences their aesthetics into film noir that then feeds back into America, and we'll get into more of that next season. But again, a point being, these are dynamic processes. These are not little objects that you can put discreetly on a shelf without them touching the the object next to it. Good point. Yeah, Absolutely. and I think that's what's rich Absolutely. about it all. Yeah. Yeah, as, as much as I love to break down things, and, and sometimes you call me out on that, and that's fine, uh, perfectly fine. I I think I, I like to break things down into pieces not because I want to be hemmed in by them, but I want to understand the mm -hmm. components so I can be able to do different things with them. So yeah. like when yeah. I look at you know the hero's journey and stuff like that, I, I love seeing the onion slip over top of something and looking at it from a perspective but that doesn't mean that that's the only way to look at stuff in any well, way. I think it's also a, um, a occupational hazard that we both have because your day job is as a pedagogue. And for many years I was an andragogue and <laughs> your whole job is to teach people the basics. Right. My whole job was to say, you guys did your prerequisites, right? You've already done the basics. Now we can spend eight hours going deep into something because you're going to need to use this in your job tomorrow. Right. Right. But yeah, and just for me, it's like like to uh, use a musical metaphor. Yeah, it's important to learn the scales. It's important to talk about the scales. It's important to talk about the modes. At some point, that becomes counterproductive to writing a song. It has to be integrated before you can really let it go. Absolutely. <laughs> and then move on, right? Those kind of things. Because you get stuck in that, I've got to start, go from C to D to E to F. You're never going to be able to write anything of worth. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I, I think it's important to to learn the fundamentals and then just break all the rules. You know, it, it's but I, I always I always told students in playwriting and screenwriting. Yeah, learn the fundamentals. Look at what's mm -hmm. come before and then go off on your own on in your own place and make it your own. You know, so I, I think I think there's both sides are, are important to do. You know, while we're on this uh, subject, I have two great quotes that I've been saving for um, you know a discussion along these lines. Uh, 
on the types of stories. You know, we've always got these two different things of like, uh, you know, oh, there's only five types of stories. There's 13 right, types right. of stories. People argue about that all the time. And I really have no time for that sort of thing, as, as you and Jack know mm -hmm. very well. But I found two that I thought were brilliant because they reduced to the point of being almost poetic metaphor that then allows a greater depth of exploration. One is from Italo Calvino's... Um, Excellent, excellent book. If anyone has not read If on a Winter's Night a Traveler, you should. It's metatextual. It flips between first and third and second person. It does all sorts of cool things. At the end of it, almost almost the actual end, these people are talking, and it's within a metatextual context of stories and them being in stories and reading stories. The ultimate meaning to which all stories refer has two faces, the continuity of life, the inevitability of death. Mm. I really like that because it's like it's very simple, but at the same time, there it's not reductive. It's like wow, that that provides a whole realm of exploration. And then um, here's another one that uh, supposedly comes from uh, Jim Thompson, the uh, the noir and uh, heart crime novelist, but it was coming through someone else, so I don't know the original source. Which is there are many kinds of stories, but only one plot. Things are not as they seem. That's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. Nice. You know, it's, wow, both of those are fantastic. So I think that encapsulates, yeah, whether there's 13, 7, 5, whether there's 10 structure or 10, you know, elements to a good story or whatever, all of those models fit within those definitions. Oh, definitely. And I, and I, I was thinking on the first quote about the inevitability of death and just what came to mind was, you know, the wild bunch when these oh, yeah. guys are trying to, you know, it's our last job. It's our last, you know, we're going to make one more score and then, you know. We're going to hang it up and go straight. And, and then finally, in the end, you know, when, when they decide they're going to walk in and, and uh, face, the, um, face the, the troops, and they know it's the end. They know they're going to die. And, you know, they, and, and, you know, they have that long walk. If you remember the film, that, that, I love that long walk, you know, into the town mm -hmm. that they do. And they all know they're, they're dead men, you know, but they're going to go out uh, the way that they want to go out. So... It's uh, interesting. That just popped into my mind when you said that, and, and we could come up with a thousand more um, examples. Oh, I'm absolutely! Sure. That's the best part of all of this stuff is that there's a thousand more stories to even be oh, told yeah. mm -hmm. about all this, and yep. uh, you know things like you know generation and time and place and all that kind of thing add to the flavor of those you know those human stories, and uh, but they don't. They don't necessarily hem it in into only one way of doing things. Thank you so much for uh, this season. It was really, really yeah. wonderful stuff. This was awesome. Amazing. Guys. Yeah, cool. I loved it. Well, then we will continue, folks. Look for us, I guess, probably at the beginning of next year mm -hmm. at this point. We're getting so close yeah. to the end of this year. Yep. Uh, where we will start season five. Season five. Season yeah. five, are we? Season five. I've got so many different shows. Get this: six and sixteen of Sonic Society. Season so many of yeah. Season five. <clears throat> I'll cut all that nonsense out. Season five of Sonic Echo with our noir, uh, our look into noir. And so uh, for that, we'll all go uh, our separate ways down the trail, I suppose. Thanks so much for showing up tonight, Lothar. I'm gonna swap out my. Uh... My uh, Stetson for a fedora. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> and thank you, Jeff. Have a great time down oh, the trail. Yes, I will. Thank you. And thank you, Jack. And same to both of you. It was, this has been a wonderful season. Yep, absolutely. Adios. Right. Good night. Adios.
This has been an Electric Vicuna production. Thank you for listening to Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network. We invite you to continue the amazing audio tomorrow on Mutual with the Monday Matinee. Our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic, and live radio dramas. You can subscribe to the full Mutual Audio Network feed every day for the world's largest curated collection of audio drama. Or find the Monday Matinee feed in your favorite podcast players. See you tomorrow at the matinee, and thanks so much for listening. The Mutual Audio Drama Network, where we listen and imagine together.